Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Tonight's program is produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, Vilma V, and Vanessa Bohm, with special help from Kayla Mulholland. In tonight's program, we'll be speaking with program staff and youth from the Central American Resource Center about their recent trip to El Salvador honoring the legacy of Oscar Romero. We'll also hear about the impact the arts has had for the homeless in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Nina Serrano brings us a commentary about the Serra is No Saint campaign. And listeners will get a chance to hear about the Latino films being featured at the 58th San Francisco International Film Festival, kicking off this Thursday. We'll also feature the music of Edna Vasquez, who will be performing this Friday alongside Diana Gameros at the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts in San Francisco. All this and more, so stay tuned. We begin with Noticias Sin Fronteras with Vilma V. Buenas noches, this is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending April 19th. Venezuela. It was announced this past weekend that the Venezuelan government will receive $5 billion in financing from the Chinese government. The money is to be used for development, but no details were released. Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro traveled to Beijing back in January and said at that time that the Chinese would be making investments in his country. According to the China Latin American Finance Database, China's state-owned banks have increased their loans to Latin American countries by 71% in 2014. The Chinese loans exceed the combined worth of those by the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank. Venezuela has been hit hard by the recent drop in oil prices and had an inflation rate of 60% in 2014. El Papa. The Vatican announced that Pope Francis will be visiting Ecuador, Bolivia, and Paraguay this summer in July. This will be Pope Francis's second trip to Latin America. His first was to Brazil in 2013. Ecuador's president, Rafael Correa, hailed the planned visit as an honor and said his country was already celebrating. Bolivian President Evo Morales also welcomed the news, saying that it was a joy to have the visit confirmed. During his 2013 trip to Brazil, Pope Francis attended the biggest ever Catholic World Youth Day, and addressed an estimated 3 million Catholics at a vigil on Copacabana Beach. The Pope will visit the United States this September. He also announced plans to visit his native Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay sometime in 2016. Cuba As another indicator of the changing relationship between Cuba and the United States, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo arrived in Cuba yesterday. He is the first U.S. governor to visit the island. The visit is meant to foster greater ties between New York and Cuba. Governor Cuomo is with a small group of business leaders and stated that the trip was a, quote, tremendous stepping stone that will help open the door to a new market for New York businesses. State Republican Chairman Ed Cox, however, dismissed the trade mission as a political stunt aimed at boosting the governor's profile as Cuomo considers running for president in 2016. Estados Unidos. Last Friday, hundreds of activists demonstrated outside the courtroom of the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans, Louisiana. A three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals held oral arguments on President Obama's executive order halting enforcement of certain immigration laws. 
The boisterous protests could be heard from inside the courtroom. The president's executive order is aimed at preventing the deportation of more than 4 million undocumented immigrants and was stayed back in February by U.S. District Court Judge Andrew Hainan. The state of Texas is leading a 26-state coalition challenging the president's authority to halt certain deportations. The Fifth Circuit is considered one of the most conservative appellate courts in the country, yet a similar challenge was defeated in 2014. A ruling from that hearing is not expected for several months. Mexico. Mexican state security forces are once again under heavy scrutiny after three Mexican media outlets published materials Sunday alleging that the federal police massacred 16 unarmed people in two separate but related attacks in January of this year. The killings took place as the police attempted to retake the municipal headquarters in Apatzingan, Michoacán, that had been occupied by members of a self-defense group. It was reported that no members of the group had fired their weapons, yet the police had attributed the deaths to, quote, friendly fire from within the group. 44 people were arrested, yet 43 were later released due to a lack of evidence. There is a video purportedly showing the massacre, but that video has not been publicly released. Honduras Honduran environmental activist Berta Caceres was one of six people, three men and three women, awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize in San Francisco last night. Caceres, who is a mother of four, has faced threats of arrest, rape, and even death while opposing powerful landowners, private security guards, and a U.S.-funded police force in her efforts to prevent the building of four giant dams in the Gualcarque River Basin in Honduras. Caceres is the founder and coordinator of the National Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, known in Spanish as COPIN. Honduras has been identified as the most dangerous country in the world for environmental and land activists, according to the NGO Global Witness. Jean Wiener of Haiti was also recognized for his work in creating the first marine protected area in Haiti. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us track, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles with an update to our earlier report on the health of death row political prisoner and revolutionary journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal. Mumia has been the victim of criminal neglect by the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections for months, and his life is in grave danger. On April 2nd, Mumia collapsed in the prison infirmary bathroom and lay on the floor for 45 minutes before being found by a doctor and a prisoner. Now, in a manually operated wheelchair, Mumia is very weak, having lost more than 50 pounds, and his skin is still raw and blistered, and he has some problems breathing not to mention pain, itching, shaking, and some memory issues. All this was done to him, imposed on him by the criminal justice system. His plight is typical for long-term prisoners. 
Compounding the inadequate nutrition is the subpar medical care provided for by the vast for-profit provider that reaps some $1.5 billion a year in profits from prison health care contracts. Using an HMO model that puts cost-cutting above all, Corazon Correctional Healthcare has paid millions in legal settlements over inadequate or bungled treatment. Mumia's supporter urged that people demand Mumia be allowed to see his own doctor. Go to freemumia.com for more information. That was freemumia.com. Seda was no saint. That refers to Father Junipero Sera, as you may have heard him called. On a beautiful Sunday afternoon, I went with family members to the recently reclaimed American Indian Movement's sacred site in Vallejo's Glen Cove, also known as Sagoria Te. The American Indian Movement has for over a decade protested the city of Vallejo's plan to desecrate this sacred shell burial mound. After many years of negotiation with the city of Vallejo, the group and its allies had recently occupied the parkland for over 100 days to protect the sacred spaces during the major renovation process. They achieved partial success on this ongoing battle. As we gathered for a ceremony, we were offered food and guided tours of this tranquil and scenic place on the banks of the Sacramento River. As part of the event, we formed four spontaneous discussion groups about the new campaign to stop the canonization, the granting of sainthood to the brutal Father Junipero Serra. We were divided into four groups by our birthdays, by the seasons, spring, summer, winter, fall. As all California fourth graders know, Sera was the founder of the California Mission Systems. But what they aren't always told by their text or teachers is that Sera and the Mission System enslaved and worked to actively destroy the native cultures and religions. The campaign was recently kicked off with protests at some of the missions, and we'll be keeping you posted on this issue here at La Raza Chronicles. This has been a commentary by Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. Bienvenidos. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. On today's program, some important guests in the studio that just got back from a very big trip. We are talking with a group that just went on a delegation to El Salvador. They went to honor Oscar Romero and his memory. This was a youth delegation primarily. May, why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you do with Carecen and you're a part of this delegation. So tell us why it was so important for Carecen to be a part of this. I'm the program manager for the Second Chance Youth Program and Tattoo Removal Clinic. It was important for us, especially for the youth, to come out to El Salvador for they could recognize and have a reminder of where their roots are and where they come from, the struggle of their families and the struggle of historically families in general in El Salvador. So 
Um, Victorino, you work on this youth program as with youth at Carecen as well. As and Sebastian, you are a young person that has been a part of a Carecen program. So. Why don't we start off, Victorino, why don't you tell us a little bit about, for you personally, some things that really affected you or impacted you on this trip? Well, for me, what impacted me was to finally realize what my father had gone through because he's Salvadorian and he fled the war and him going through all those struggles and seeing all the struggle that the people in El Salvador are going through. And not only that, seeing how much, how hurt they are about all the desaparecidos and finally getting to see how my father lived and and really get to experience and really recognize how important his movement was and how it really affected him and due to him fleeing is how I was born but now I could really really understand his story and really now I appreciate what he did me being Latino from the US and I have a lot of tattoos across my body I was always scared because of all the rumors that were happening uh, all the all the rumors that the people were talking about it kind of put me in fear I always wanted to visit but I always always pushed back because of it so now being able to go it was very it was very eye opening and seeing how much of a taboo it is in this country but yeah it was it was a great experience so Karesen planned this trip and marked around an important date the anniversary of the murder of Oscar Romero um, May, why don't you give us a breakdown for people listening that maybe aren't really familiar with the importance of Archbishop Romero and to the Salvadoran people, but also to the people of all the Americas? Um, yes, Oscar Romero, also known in Salvador as Monsignor Oscar Romero, was an archbishop in Salvador who fought for the struggles of human rights, particularly the poor people in El Salvador. He fought for justice. He fought for basically the poorest people in the community in a time where it was most likely to be killed for standing up for the rights of other people and trying to advocate for that. He was killed in his church by the Salvadorian military. And after that, many people in El Salvador to this day believe him to be the God of El Salvador or a person of higher powers that has come to touch the pueblo of El Salvador. And I know a lot of this trip was about going to some of those important places like the church where he was murdered by the military. So tell us about that. Well, yeah, it was a kind of uh, a sad, a sad experience. Uh, but also uh, it was it was great going there to to see where he was giving mass at where he taught these people how to stay strong and how to live and stay up into the to the government and fight back. Yeah, it was pretty awesome being there. Also, when we were there, we got to experience him him being to uh, San Romero, right? So a San Romero is a well, it's a priest ter- uh, transitioning into a into a saint, and so uh, and then once the priest is to is a saint, uh, his name is turned into San San Romero. Yeah, so that was one experience that we we got to we got to see in the church, and and we also got to meet the archbishop there. the The president was there, and there was this one lawyer who who was helping the the community at that time with their laws and everything. 
and what they want back from from the military. So Sebastian, you are in high school and you are also Salvadoran descent. Can you tell us about your specific experience? I know you also had an emotional experience going to your family's homeland. So tell us about that. Yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. You know, uh, got to see my family, my other half of the family that I never got to see. Also sad uh, and uh, it's kind of hard to leave them and to see them again. But uh, yeah, I have heard much about them and they had so many questions to ask me about how the U.S. is and and how it's different from here and from the U.S. Yeah, it, it was pretty sad, but you know, you just got to stay strong and just keep supporting your family out there. And when I got there, I learned a lot about my roots, uh, how how the war started and how, how these people revolt against the military, I should say, uh, the Salvadoran military. So there's some people listening that maybe don't have the context. They don't really know much about what the history of El Salvador. So for folks that maybe don't know too much about the country, you know, why did so many people have to leave? And a little bit about the war and the violence. So I believe in 1979, the Civil War really began to kick off. And the people were very unpleased with the military being in charge. So the Salvadorian people decided to fight back. This caused a lot of bloodshed. There was genocides that happened throughout the country. Priests were getting killed nonstop. You know, it all started in the 80s, and then they killed a few priests. And within those, Monsignor Romero was one of them. It was just a way to really cut power off because El Salvador is such a, I believe, a Catholic country. So pretty much people would look up to the priests, you know. So by the military, the Salvadoran military killing all the priests, that that really made the people very angry. And um, pretty much it just really made the people feel like, whoa, you know, like this is not right. So that was happening. And then the guerrilla started and um, they would fight back. So it was just a lot of blood being spilled throughout the country. And it, it, it created a whole violent generation down to when even when the the people fled and they got to the U.S., then they picked up whatever they did in in L.A., which then they got deported back, so they brought back the mentality of gangs, and then it it all combined. It's just the war really affected El Salvador, and it all started in 79, and I believe, and my personal belief is the war is still happening because of what happened then. It's still going on now because... It's just a domino effect, you know, like the war. People were spilling blood because the the military was very, or the, the country was being run in the wrong way. They flee, then they get deported back, and now the the country is going through their own war against Amaras, and now blood is being spilled throughout the country still, you know. It's just really sad to see that such a small little country is going through so much pain and, and grief, you know. So that's how it all began, you know. So... A lot of people are afraid. People, all they know about El Salvador is from the media. That means they don't, they don't know very much positivity. What they're hearing more is about the violence, about the fear. So I'd love to hear from you three any stories you have in terms of people you met, things you heard, stories that you want to share because not a lot of people have that firsthand experience of getting to talk to people on the ground. For me, I spoke to a lot of elders, actually with Sebastian, and um, they're very hurt still. They're still very hurt. A lot of them still don't have their kids. They they don't even know what happened to their kids. 
their their husbands, and they're really mad are at the youth nowadays. Not just anybody, but at youth, just because they feel that um, they're not pushing enough to to really better their community. Instead, they're pretty much making it more violent. So when we talk to them, to war survivors who've lost families, um, they were just giving it to us. They were really not happy with us. <laughs> they were like, no, you guys got to be on it, you know, like, which is cool because um, we get to really feel what they feel. Um, and um, and we explained to them um, that we're here to learn so we can help them out. And it's pretty sad to, to really think about it. Like, it's been how many years since the war ended? And it's they're still affected by it, especially because they can't find their loved ones, their family members. And then for safety, um, it's still dangerous. We have to be on our toes, especially because a lot of our team that works at Caresen, uh, the, the part of our delegation that went, we all have tattoos, especially uh, my boss May and I were very heavily tatted. We had to be really on our toes with uh, long sleeves. Sometimes we wore uh, turtlenecks. And um, even like that, we were going through the struggling because of the heat, you know, and it was it was very uncomfortable. But at the same time, we know that this is what we needed to do to protect our youth and not only our youth, ourselves as well. We had to come up with our, our own uh, game plan. So when we went out, I was in the back because I think I'm, I believe I'm the tallest one. So I'm all the way in the back making sure that everybody is fine. And then we had one in the front to lead it off. And then we had, I think, I believe May right in the middle where she would be looking all around as well. So we always made sure that we had our eyes open because we went to El Mercado Central. It's pretty hectic. I, I believe like a, a few people were shot just the day before that. So we were like, we have to be on top, you know. So it's very dangerous. We have to really make sure, and especially because, like I said, tattoos really like it's. Um, I, I believe uh, May said it's the it's a first world privilege to have it, and we have to like. Now, as soon as we got back, we were like, all right, tank top, you know, like we were just like happy. I don't care. It was like 60 degrees outside. But we were like, hey, you know what? Take it off. But it was um, we didn't feel comfortable, you know, like I believe it's still pretty dangerous for Americans. We're considered Americans, but a blood, you know, we're 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 foreigners. But we were just getting uh, everybody that was in the with us in the delegation that was from Salvador was talking to us and being like, no, don't go out. Can't go out. No, don't go by yourself. We'll go outside. Hey, where, where, where are you guys going? Where are you guys going? Come back. Don't. You guys leave in pairs of twos. And it was just like, even for them, they were just like, you know, just being on top of us. So I feel like it was it was a scary situation, but we, we got to learn about it. And actually, I feel like that being in that environment made us closer because now we we really got to see each other, how we protect each other, because I, I believe we're all parents, even down to the youth. They were protecting us. They're like, hey, hey, what are you doing? Cover up that tattoo. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah. And so Carecen does a lot of work with people who are from all over Central America and actually all over. You all are very open. You work with where there's need. But there's a lot of folks that walk through Carecen's door who've either been a victim of war in terms of experiencing violence or their family has. So most of us are survivors of war in our home countries. So how did this trip help shape or inform how you all are going to continue to do your youth work or your work with families in general? Um, for me, I believe it goes with our mission. 
of being Caresen, right? Our great inspiration is Monsignor Oscar Romero. So I think it's important for us to go back and to, to kind of just stay grounded on our mission, our values, on who we're helping, on how Caresen even started. Caresen was founded in 1986 by Salvadorian refugees. So I feel that going back, I haven't been back to Central America in 15 years. So going back really helped me to um, stay empowered, to remind ourselves of the work that we do and why it's so important for us here in the, in the U.S., because we're reminded every day that we work with people of trauma, of war, of struggle, of fleeing their countries, their family, everything that they know. So Caresen for us to be here in the U.S., is, it's, it's quite an honor and, and a privilege, I have to say, in serving these communities, uh, myself being born in Nicaragua and fleeing the Civil War myself, so for me, it's an honor to give back and to remind ourselves where we come from, the struggles that we have, and the struggles that our peoples are still struggling with over there at home. And us being so heavily tattooed, I think that it, it, it was more of a reality check for us here in the U.S. of um, having to cover our tattoos, you know, like... Uh, Compañero Victorino says, you know, we're in long sleeve. Like, mind you folks, it's 69% humidity out there. So us in long sleeves, like I think Victorino and I came back a few inches smaller from um, having to cover our tattoos. But the, the first thing people fear are people that are heavily tattooed. So I know that both you, Sebastian, and Victorino had these reunion stories that were really powerful. So... My mom, when she was 16, she left from El Salvador because of the war. And uh, it's funny because she left 16 and I and I went to El Salvador. Well, I'm right now 16. So so like it was kind of a weird transition because because she was 16 when she left. And I'm 16 when when I'm going back where she left from from her country. When when I left, she said to me, like she said, uh, because she doesn't have papers or anything. And so my mom always told me that that at least something part of me is going to my country and representing me, well, my mom. And and that's something that really touched me. And so when I first met my, my auntie, my four cousins, and well, her, her two sons, well, one of my cousins' two sons, and uh, it was a great, a great touching emotion part that, that just really touched me and uh and probably just touched my family also in the heart uh it was just great seeing them knowing where they came from and how how they're living from over there what's their experience and uh i got to talk to them a lot how's el salvador treating them and how san francisco is treating me also but uh they told me about these great experience of how they're surviving themselves by just by just selling pupusas in the streets and uh and also doing circus out in the streets just gaining like a dollar two dollars a day you know it's and it's not a lot but it's at least it's going to help him with some food well, and something that really uh that showed me to be more to be more mature and uh step up my game with with my family and and show them who's who's the boss in the house was my my cousin he's he's my age or 15 and he has his mom my auntie out there with him and it's just them two and well, my cousin helps my auntie a lot. 
um, by just helping take out the pupusas, uh, preparing the pupusas, or either helping with the chores in the house. He's like he's like the man of the house basically, and that's what really uh, showed me to, to step up my game in the house and and show and show my family to be mature. For me, um, it was a great experience meeting my family. It was funny because it was really hard to communicate over there, you know, especially because he works a lot. And um, we were having our meeting, and then I was like, hey, you know what? I'm guessing my uncle might come. I'm not sure. You know, I'm walking down the stairs, and boom, I bump into a guy, and he turns around. He just looks at me. We stare at each other for a little bit. And then he's like, oh, Victorino. And I was like, oh, there he goes. He actually came. So it was a great experience meeting him and his daughters, my cousins. They're doing great. They're in school. I could see that my family's really pushing to succeed. They're not trying to be in a low statistic, you know? So it's great. But uh, what really impacted me was uh, meeting my, my girl cousin, who's uh, two years older than me, 25. So she's doing great. She graduated from the UCA. And then so she's well set. And now she's moving to Nicaragua. So she does not want to live in El Salvador anymore. She feels it's too dangerous for her. Mind you that El Salvador has the largest femicide rate in the world. So I I could feel her on that, you know. Like, I understand where she's coming from. So she's fleeing and she just feels more comfortable in Nicaragua. So it was funny because she was leaving that Friday, and I got to meet her on the Wednesday. So right before we both leave, we got to meet each other. So it was, I know it was meant to be. It was a great experience. I really don't have much family from my dad's side here in the States, but knowing that I got to meet one that's in, in my motherland was so great. Hearing her stories, how, how she feels. And actually, it's funny because... She has a lot of tattoos, and she has a cover of herself as well, you know. I understand where she was coming from, so that's something we could relate, you know. So her telling me those stories, I'm telling her our stories in El Salvador, and then, yeah, it touched me so much that I'm I'm willing to uh, help her out and try my best to uh, see if I could help her just get a traveling visa. Just so she, All she wants to do is just come to the States and see how it is to live here. I, I could finally say... Uh, I know my family in El Salvador, and I, I know my motherland now, and I get to, I understand when my father came, why he came to the States, why my mother came to the States, and I could finally say that I uh, understand the struggles, and I understand why everything happened. So I'm very grateful for this beautiful opportunity that I got. I know there are people listening that want to get involved with this really important community work. How can people find out more about Caresen and the work that you all are doing? So they could visit our website at www.garesen, it's spelled C-A-R-E-C-E-N-S-F dot org. They can also um, reach us at 415-642-4400. You've been hearing from some folks who have just gotten back just a few weeks ago from an important delegation honoring Monsignor Oscar Romero his life, his important legacy, and they were just returned from El Salvador. So thank you so much, May, Victorino, and Sebastián. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We know that art can have a profound impact on people's lives. Studies have shown how nursing home patients transform when they are given iPods with music from their youth, how young people who participate in the arts outperform their peers, and how dancing is good for your brain. 
Hospitality House, a nonprofit addressing homelessness and poverty in San Francisco's Tenderloin District, has provided a free of charge fine arts studio to the neighborhood's residents since 1969. On Friday, May 8th, Hospitality House celebrates the 30th anniversary of its annual art auction, which supports their community arts program. Robin Takayama brings us this segment with Ivan Vera, Hospitality House's community arts program manager, and Ira Watkins, one of the artist honorees at the event. The community arts program is a creative drop-in center. Uh, like all the other components of Hospitality House, we want to give uh, people a place to go to get off the street. Uh, the arts program particularly is a place for creative people to come and have access to materials or even how to get this idea out of my head into a t-shirt. The staff there facilitates that process. They could do anything from drawing, painting, silk screening, ceramics, airbrush, digital manipulations in the computer. In 2010, the community arts program moved from Turk Street to Market and Sixth Streets, just below the highly respected luggage store gallery. Well, our move to Market Street was supposed to be temporary only, while the building on Leavenworth was being renovated, the place where we've been at since 1969. But being on Market Street has provided us a much larger visibility And the impact has been so amazing that we made every effort possible to make that a permanent location. Sales quadruple, and uh, that money is 100% money that goes to the artist's pockets. My first drawing that I sold, believe it or not, it was a lady, she came and asked me, do you know if anyone in here, can I can get someone to sketch a little sketch for me? That's Ira Watkins, one of CAP's longtime participants. I said, all depends on what you want. She wanted a little old poodle about this side. I said, well, let me see what you have. I end up sketching, oh, this is guess perfect. What I owe you? I said, you don't owe me anything. Cause to me, it was just some simple stuff, like a line drawing. Oh, no, let me tell you right now, you can't do art free. She went up the street. She said, I'll be back in a few days. I forgot all about the lady. Two or three days later, I was going to where I used to live. And I see her across the street, so I'm just stopping to speak to her. My across the street, she said, I'm heading to the hospitality house now. I got something for you. And gave me $5 and change. You know, I always remember stuff like that. Ira was born in Waco, Texas in 1941, a time he says was rough for black people, but his parents always kept a roof over their heads and food on the table. He settled in San Francisco when he was 21 to be an artist. It was 1961. In 1967, LGBT youth flocked to San Francisco for the burgeoning queer liberation movement and the Summer of Love. But summer turned to fall, and 3,000 young people found themselves living on the streets. Hospitality House formed as a response, offering a simple drop-in space with food and respite from the streets. Two years later, Hospitality House started the Community Arts Program. By the late 70s, Ira was smoking crack, but art was still on his mind. His friend told him there was a place downtown that would give him art supplies. Eventually, Ira walked into Hospitality House. I've been drawing and painting all my life, but when I came to the program, 
it's like changing from an amateur to a professional. You know, like you start getting paid for your work. That's my interpretation of a professional person. Are there other ways that the community arts program helped you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. By me working at the hospitality house, I made different connection with different galleries and everything because I used to be like the error board to carry mail to these different galleries and things for them, although they paid me for each delivery $5. One time uh, I walked into a place in Richmond, California, looking at the art. First thing came out the latest math, did you come to see about the job? I said, yeah, if it's art related. I stayed there 10 and a half years. I always tell people, like, uh, I have a paintbrush and things, like I have them here right now, believe it or not, (laughs) (laughs) that I carry around with me, and I tell them, this here done opened plenty of doors for me. I'm an eighth-grade dropout, and I done been in avenues with different people. They never really spoke to me, you know. I mean, like, uh, at one time, the president of the Bank of San Francisco, you got to have ten or $20,000 just to deposit money, open up an account there. I'd be going down the street, hey, Ira, you know, stuff like this here. So I tell people, this here opened plenty of doors for me. You know, like you hear about opportunities knocking, you just have to step through the door. Well, that's what happened in my case. I stepped through the door of hospitality house. My whole life changed. You know, I used to hang out in the streets like everyone else. We, one of the things that poverty does, it really stifles feelings of self-esteem, well-being. Um, so we try to go at that root level and tap into the creative aspect of somebody. If you could make, by making art, we can make you feel great about yourself, great about like your talent and everything. That's the, the, the holistic approach that we take at Hospitality House, trying to heal through the, tapping into those feelings of well-being to bring them back out and try to foster the creativity that usually gets trampled by poverty. The agency at large takes the same model with a lot of different resources as well, whether it be free massages, like case management, free therapy, opportunity to other events that are culturally enriching as well. Like on Friday, we took uh, 50 people to the A Weiwei in Alcatraz. And this is something our clients would not have access to. They would not afford a $40 ferry ride. Um, So the experience for them was transformative and really amazing. So we look for opportunities like that to provide them a richer life. And I think art tends to do that at a very grassroots level. You know, sometimes people don't come and they're undergoing a lot of stress and trauma and they put that away during the time that they're making art because their brain and the hand for that time that they're making art are focused at one task and one task only. So everything else dissipates. The more that we keep that connection alive, the more we tend to heal and make people feel better. For 30 years, one of the ways Hospitality House has supported the community arts program is through its lively art auction. With support from esteemed galleries like White Walls, Raina Branston, and Andrea Schwartz, there's work for sale by street artists Jeremy Novi, known for his koi fish, Chad Hasegawa, known for his bears, and an etching by Enrique Chagoya of the UC Davis pepper spray incident. Work by CAP artists is also for sale. One year I had a picture to auction off at the hospitality house for $1,500. I didn't have a dime in my pocket. At that time, you donated pictures to the program to raise funds. I went and talked to them, told them, we need to change this system. <laughs> <laughs> Which they did. 
And as Ira said, he probably was the one person influential in changing the way we did the auction. Our auction, since a lot of our clients, our artists are poor, we give them back up to 25% of the sale proceeds. Well, and I think it's really important because a lot of times people will say like, well, that organization has a lot of money. But when you're a nonprofit, certain dollars are dedicated to certain things. So like an institution may have money for a housing program, but they have to come up with other money for the arts program. So unfortunately, we're kind of in a gray area where we're sometimes a little too art oriented for human service grants. And sometimes we're a little to human service uh, for art grants. A lot of our money comes from the Department of Public Health, and that helps have a roof over our head, pays a lot of the salary and the basics. The auction itself funds a lot of the other things that we don't have grant money for. Is there anything that either of you wants to say in closing? I'm glad that the program exists because it gives people a place to go, and they can focus on something that, you know, they don't have to pay to come in. You don't have to pay for your suppliers. And in the bear and they'll tell how many people know about the hospitality house. By being connected with the hospitality house, you have access to these people that you never would have otherwise. I would like to extend an invitation to anybody that's curious about the art program or the organization itself to come and visit us and see it at work and what it does for people. We're very low threshold and welcome everybody. Um, And a lot of people get bitten by the bug and end up volunteering and being a part of the organization from seeing the impact that it has on the neighborhood residents and the homeless people. That was Robin Takayama talking with Ivan Vera, Program Manager for Hospitality House's Community Arts Program, and Ira Watkins, an artist whose work you can purchase at Hospitality House's 30th Anniversary Art Auction on Friday, May 8th at White Walls Gallery in San Francisco. For more information, visit hospitalityhouse.org. Que juegue a la ronda el sol y la tierra A la rueda, ruedita, tierra de piedra Dame un besito, sol de madera A la rueda, rueda, luz De pan y canela, viento You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I have on the line with me Rod Armstrong. He is with San Francisco Film Society, and he is one of the programmers for the 56th annual San Francisco International Film Festival, which is about to kick off in just a couple days. Sé que tenemos muchos fanáticos del cine. We know we have a lot of people that love international film, and Rod is going to walk us through some of the many, many offerings that are from all over the world, especially America Latina. 46 countries are represented in this year's festival. Rod, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, thank you for having me. So Rod, it's a very diverse festival. You'll have 181 films, you have a ton of documentaries, a lot of shorts, a lot of premieres, and you also have 33 languages represented. Walk us through some of the Spanish language films, some of the films from America Latina that you are featuring. Sure. Well, one of our primary awards is being given to the Mexican filmmaker Guillermo del Toro, 
and uh, we're showing his Spanish-language film, The Devil's Backbone. So he's receiving our very special Irving M. Levin Directing Award for his career. And so he's going to talk about his career on stage. We're going to show the film. He's going to show some clips of upcoming projects. So that's one really prominent event we have focusing on a Latino filmmaker. As you say, our program really covers the gamut. And as I'm looking at the Latin American cinema program, I see that we have films in our documentary section. I see that we have shorts represented. We have master filmmaker Lissandro Alonso's new film, Halha, is represented. And we have first-time feature directors like Juan Francisco Olea from Chile and his film El Cordero. So we really are covering the swath of different sections of our program with particular Latin American films. And how can people find out more about when and where the films that they want to see will be listed? And is there a way to search for language or country? Uh, sure. Our website at festival.sffs.org offers a variety of ways to search, whether it's by day. The festival begins Thursday, April 23rd, and ends on Thursday, May 7th, 15 days later. There is a way to search by particular country. There's a way to search by language. And there's a way to search by the section that each film is in. You have the privilege of being able to see a lot of these films beforehand. And there are a lot of films that really people can only catch at the International Film Festival because they don't have a wide release within the U.S. or in the Bay Area. So have you seen any themes or anything that for you really stood out when you think about some of the Latin American or Latino films that will be featured? No, I think once again, the remarkable thing is the breadth. So, for example, we have a movie from Mexico called All of Me, which in its own way deals with humanitarianism and the politics of immigration, where these women who have been profiled in news stories are preparing food for people passing by on the high-speed trains that are headed to the border. And the people kind of lean off the train and grab for the bags of food that they've prepared. And so that's a documentary called All of Me. Then the movie I mentioned earlier, El Cordero, is really kind of a satire and kind of a drama focusing on a religious man who commits a crime and discovers that he might not feel remorse over that crime. And so there's kind of a commentary on religion there. A movie like The Second Mother from Brazil focuses on class relationships in its portrait of a woman who works for a wealthy family and what happens when her daughter, who is less subservient than her mom, comes to town and is staying with, uh, in the wealthy family's house. Another movie from Peru called NN, which is a second film by Hector Galvez, really reflects on Peru's history and trying to come to terms with a lot of the people who were disappeared during the military regime. And those are a lot of themes that we cover week after week here at La Raza Chronicles. So I know that there'll be screenings across the Bay. Can you give us a sense of where people can check out these films? Sure. Our primary venue is the Kabuki Cinemas in uh, Japantown of San Francisco. Uh, we're also at a theater right up the street called the Clay, Landmarks Clay Theater. Across the bay in Berkeley, we are at the Pacific Film Archive. And then we've got some one-off screenings at the Castro. For example, Guillermo del Toro will be at the Castro. We've got some other one-off screenings on weekend evenings at the Roxy. Yeah, as, as you say, we're, uh, we're covering a lot of territory. So that's the voice of Rod Armstrong. He's a programmer for the San Francisco International Film Festival 
festival and this is a really an important time to get to see some films you wouldn't otherwise get to and the festival kicks off in just a couple days and goes on till May 7th and we hope to be able to interview one of the Latin American filmmakers on our program next week. So Rod, why don't you give our listeners the website to find out more about the screening they want to check out? Yeah, sure. Everything is available at our festival website, which once again is festival.sffs.org. Muchísimas gracias, Rod, and we'll talk to you next year to hear more. Okay, gracias a ustedes. for La Raza Chronicles Community Calendar of Upcoming Events. On Friday, April 24th, the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts invites community members, arts organizations, and patrons to join them in their annual Carnival Fundraiser Party. On Friday, April 24th, the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts invites community members, arts organizations, and patrons to join them in their annual Carnival Fundraiser Party, Rumbagua. Dance to Aldino Manoya's El Sorullo y su Dinamita Band. Enjoy food and signature cocktails, as well as an art exhibit and special performance by Brenda Perdue and Javier Alvarez, Rumbagua Choreographers. That's Friday, April 24th at 8.30 p.m. at the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts. For more information, go to missionculturalcenter.org. Also at the Mission Cultural Center on Saturday, April 25th, join Latin American singer-songwriter Diana Gameros with her band and special guest artist Mexican singer Edna Vasquez for an enchanting evening of original and traditional music from across the Americas. They will be performing again at the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts located in San Francisco. The show will begin at 7 p.m. For more information, go to the missionculturalcenter.org. And on Sunday, April 26th, come celebrate the release of a new anthology, Overthrowing Capitalism, by the Revolutionary Poets Brigade, with a poetry reading and copies for sale. The event will be held at Modern Times Bookstore, located at 2919 24th Street, between Alabama and Florida Streets in San Francisco's Mission District. The event will begin at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. The featured poets include John Curl and contributors Adrian Arias, Manaz Badihian, Virginia Barrett, Lincoln Bergman, Yolanda Katzalco, Gary Hicks, Kirk Lumpkin, Dorothy Payne, and KPFA Radio's Nina Serrano. The event will be hosted by D. Allen. That's Sunday, April 26th at Modern Times Bookstore in San Francisco. And be sure to mark your calendars Saturday, May 9th, because La Peña Cultural Center presents the exquisite music and poetry of Rafael Manriquez through the voices, hands, and hearts of an exciting lineup of prominent musicians. Rafael's daughter, Marcia, and San Manuel will be joined on stage by other members of the Manriquez family, as well as many well-known Bay Area performers. Edgardo Cambón, Jacqueline Rago, Lichi Fuentes, Fernando Torres, Ellen Moore, Daniel Morgan, and Camila Valdivieso, Ricardo Valdivieso, Mauricio Bertin, Mark Baum, Hugo Weinziger, Mochi Parra, Axel Herrera, Avacha Amadupe, Roque Barron, 
Brandon Vance, Esteban Bello, Dennis Schmidt, Bob Cardi, Carlos Barron, Alisa Perez, Hector Zappa, Madeline Sayas, Bonifacio Silas, Jennifer Manriquez Cornish, and the La Peña Community Chorus all will be interpreting previous unpublished Manriquez compositions. That's Saturday, May 9th. La Raza Chronicles will greatly miss Wesley Burton. Wesley Burton, daytime board operator and co-host of KPFA music shows Sideshow Radio and After Hours, died early Saturday morning in a car accident. The KPFA family grieves the sudden loss of Wesley, who was a kind, helpful, easygoing person and committed broadcaster. Our deepest condolences go out to his wife, Lucrecia, his three children, and all of his family and friends. Wesley will be profoundly missed. We appreciate all his support for our program and send much love to his family. A fund has been set up to help Wesley's family. Please go to www.gofundme.com slash Wesley Burton to make a donation.
You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM, community-powered radio. If you would like to hear this program again or share it with others, you can go to kpfa.org or search for us, La Raza Chronicles, on soundcloud.com. Stay tuned next Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m. for more news, arts, culture, con un sabor latino. Also, no se olviden, don't forget to like us on Facebook to get regular updates on local happenings and more from the Bay Area Latino community y desde América Latina. Hasta la próxima y buenas noches.